Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Also, as we go into this conversation, we're talking about racial diversity this morning as we continue our Different Together message series. The other thing I want to note and talk about is last week when we opened it and we talked about diversity, uh, we did not uh, mention ageism. And I apologize for that. That is uh, a huge cultural issue and something to be aware on that we have these different values for people who are younger, uh, the way we view people who are older, their ability to participate in society in all those ways is obviously skewed towards uh, in our system. And so just to name that and to be aware of that and even how it affects our community here. And also uh, there are some ways where we uh, also want to, to note that when we were talking about kind of diversity, um, talking about males that have grown up in a toxic masculinity culture also wasn't discussed, uh, which is something that I think is important to, to note, is that a movement towards feminism isn't just a movement for women, um, but rather feminism is for all of us. Um, and how do we dismantle some of these toxic masculine um, cultural movements that we've been given on what it means to be in charge and to lead and to do all these things, which is equally damaging for the men who are unequipped to lead, should not be leading, but have been given message that you need to be doing this. Um, and so those are other aspects of diversity we want to continue to address and talk about. So this morning, as we talk about racial diversity, uh, speaking of ways to get involved, uh, the president and co-founder of a great organization called The Voices Project uh, and just friend of Cascade, and just friend in general, Leroy. But I encourage you, when you think about these different things, we have the rest of the conversation, the Voices Project is an amazing place that you can financially support and get involved with their incredible work. And to tell you more about that and other things, I'd like to introduce Leroy Barber. I know, it, like the... The person who really runs that show isn't here. That's I exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but talk a little bit about Voices Project, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Um, so Voices Project, it's 10 years old now, started uh, with a group of uh, black leaders from around the country talking about our, you know, kind of our experiences working in the nonprofit world, which is uh, predominantly white-led um, in a many spaces, and so what our experiences were. And we came out of that that meeting of about a dozen leaders, um, men and women from around the country, and uh, decided that we would we would form something that would uh, do three things: it would it would train and expose and promote the voices of leaders leaders of color. And so, um, pretty much that's what we do. We go around the country, we gather leaders of color from various places around the country and around the world, and uh, we do some. Some training, but mostly uh, creating a space that's not white-centered for them to experience and then mm -hmm. promote uh, those folks through publishing. Uh, we've started a publishing arm, yeah. got some writers going for the first time. Uh, we um, take students on uh, exposure trips. There's a lot to mm -hmm. it, but uh, students of color who come from you know, economically challenged backgrounds even when they graduate college, because they have to work more going through college, graduate like with less internship experience than their white peers. 
Mm. And so we work with students of color in, to do internships in the summer that expose them and get them some, some more resume building, things like that. So. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible work. And again, like support them. Support Voices Project. Uh, continue to partner. You can look it up at voicesproject.org. Um, so this morning, as we kind of talk about some of those issues that you were just discussing, uh, this isn't like we're not taking a break from talking about Christianity and the Bible to like, well, let's talk about race this morning. Um, <laughs> but rather seeing that these are intimately tied together and linked. And so we wanted to start this, the conversation this morning uh, from a passage in Ezra. Uh, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app or something, I encourage you to, to, to pull up Ezra 4. Uh, and that's where we're going to start and then kind of use that to get into some experiences that Leroy has had. So uh, Ezra 4 uh, starts, it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel Joshua and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in the building of a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Um, one of the, the things that the reason why we wanted to use that is historically we know that one of the groups that came to Joshua and the other leaders and said, Hey, we want to help rebuild the temple, we want to help build the temple that were sent away, were the Samaritans. Uh, and if you, like some of you are like, oh, like the Good Samaritan, I've heard of that one. Uh, Samaritans were a group of people that were Jewish, half Jewish and half Gentile uh, through marriage. And so they were seen as other and not fully belonging. And so they were like, hey, we want to help because this is our God too. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's not your God the way it's our God. <laughs> and so you need to not be included in this. And the reason to, to bring that up is that if you read through some of the passages of the Old Testament, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this kind of like ideology and practice of religion, this is a good thing. And yet, when we see Jesus come, Jesus is relentless about going into Samaritan places. And even the story of the Good Samaritan, he is elevating the hero of that story is the Samaritan. And he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience that this is someone you have decentered from the story and put on the outskirts of someone who doesn't belong or isn't true enough. They aren't Jewish enough. Uh, and in an age where we're having lots of conversations about who's American enough or who belongs enough, it's interesting to note that this is a very ancient issue of how do we center and understand stories and the impact of that. Mm. And so Leroy... Um, actually posted about it and, and uh, had an experience recently where hearing his own voice kind of be decentered in the way that it was talked about. So if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing a little bit about that story. Um, so I, I've, I've worked for a number of years in, uh, quote, missions or work. <laughs> I, I, I quote, quote that right now. But, um, and um, have mentored a number of, and, and most of those organizations were white folks doing missions, and, uh, and I've led a few of those organizations. Uh, and so I've been mentoring people over long periods of time, um, many, many white folks. And so I was in a conversation with one of them, uh, a mentee, and, 
And somehow the conversation wound its way towards, um, uh, towards what they thought, how I came across. And, uh, and this person's now in leadership, and we're talking about whether they wanted me to come and, and do something in the church. And, and, and he said, uh, well, I kind of I have to be careful when I say I'm going to bring you um, or talk about you because, quite frankly, you come across angry, right, and, uh, and mean. And so I was like, what? What are you talking, you know? Um, and as we wound through the conversation, um, trying to, trying to, I was trying to, like, say, well, what, what specifically? I know this person for 20 years. And, uh, and in the middle of the conversation, we're talking, and he goes, well, it's because, it's because, and then, and then he just breaks down crying, and he's like, it's because you carry yourself as you're an equal. And it was just, we had some more personal stuff after that, but it was that, like, it was like, whoa, mm -hmm. um, that over 20 years period of time, this whole idea of me being angry or me saying stuff that um, that wasn't comfortable, when he boiled it all down, he's like, you just carry yourself as if you're an equal in these spaces, and that's not comfortable. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And so, because I think that's a really helpful place to start, is that we start to see that there's a certain way of being that isn't seen as white, it's just normal. Mm -hmm. It's just the way you talk and you lead. Mm -hmm. And if anyone leads in, in, that's different from that, mm -hmm. no longer is it's like, oh, that's just different. It's mean or angry or there can have all these right. other connotations. And right. so talk a little bit more about this, the, how centering works and kind of how that, that operates to create these kind of different narratives and different interpretations of people. Well, I think it, oh, like, Overall, right, it speaks to our lack of our, even though, like, we talk about diversity and we can understand it and we can, we, some people can pontificate about it on and on, but, like, if it's not, if it's not a practice, if it's not real in your life, it comes out in spaces like that where whatever is norm, normal to you, right, isn't, it, if something different happens, that seems abnormal. And typically, if I step into a white space, majority white space, it's so different that it's seen as not normal. Mm -hmm. More than it is like, this is just another way of communicating. Yeah. Right? Or being in the world. And some of this is exactly why we want to talk about diversity, especially diversity in the church, is because without diverse experiences, you just call your experiences normal or good, otherwise you wouldn't have been participating in them. So when I grew up, I grew up in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And it was like my whole, it was the only church I ever grew up in. And when people were like, oh, what's the Evangelical Church, the Covenant Church? I'd be like, I don't know, it's just like normal Christian. Because that was the only language and experience I had. It wasn't until years later that I had lots of other denominational experiences that I was like, oh... <laughs> it is different. It does have these unique aspects to it. Um, and what's interesting, especially in a city like Portland, 
how we have, and culturally across the United States, how we've normalized white. And some of you might even be feeling like a discomfort, and like you're saying white a lot. But part of the reason for that is if you don't identify the cultural norming of whiteness, then the only diversity that can happen is other people. But there is no culture that you have. It's just normal. And the damage of that and the kind of othering of that is really, really significant. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think that's a huge point, right? And so it seems uncomfortable in majority white spaces to keep saying white, right? Like, oh, why do you keep saying white? Well, because we need to denormalize that, right? If that makes sense, right? Like, no longer can we just kind of let a space be neutral because a neutral without naming whiteness means that becomes the default norm, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's a part of the reason why I, I overtly over and over will say white person, white, like white space, white people, white somewhat music, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I did, that one just slipped out. No. <laughs> Got to let more go. I love it. <laughs> and so what we want to do in kind of continuing this conversation is um, to kind of talk more about this and what does racial diversity, especially within Christian or church spaces, look like? So we have a number of people that have agreed, in addition to Leroy, to kind of form a panel to discuss that this morning. And so I'd like to invite up Eva, Jana, and Harriet, if you would come on up and we're going to, uh, yeah, we're going to have a conversation. Would you welcome them? Perfect. All right. Uh, and so as we get our mics, we'll, we'll start over here. If you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and talking about uh, how long have you been at Cascade. Sure. My name is Eva, and I've been coming to Cascade, uh, I think Labor Day weekend was my first Sunday, so almost six months. My name is Harriet, and um, how long have this church existed? <laughs> uh, four and a half. Years? Okay, three and a half years then. (laughs) One year after you started. Um, I'm Jana, and I've been going here same weekend, actually, Labor Day weekend, so about six months. I'm Leroy. I've been connecting in and out for the last three, four years. Yeah. Yeah, it's been cool. Yeah, since pretty early on. Yeah. Uh, So the first question for everybody is, um, why would you want to be in an integrated church? Is diversity in faith community a priority for you? Why or why not? Um, yes, I would say it's a huge priority. I'm uh, my husband's white, um, so our kids are biracial, um, and it's just a uh, for us to have our kids like in a, a diverse space is would. Ideally, it would be our first priority. And I mean, completely honest, it was, that was one reason we were hesitant to come to Cascade because we knew, I've actually known Kurt and Sarah for a while, um, but we knew it was predominantly white. And so 
um, just thinking through, and um, yeah, we've obviously been here for a while, but um, just creating a space for our boys, and then for for me, just the representation of me, like my cultural experience to have people that will like me, or at least similar to me, so. Um, I am biracial, my mother's Japanese, and my father was white, and um, I pretty much assimilated into white culture and always viewed myself as white most of my life. And so uh, it had not been important until recent years as I dug deep into race in America. Um, it, it is important to me. I, I'm just struggling with whether it's truly realistic. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, because there's a value to, um, especially when it comes to culture, to being in a space that's dominated by that culture. Yeah, so I, I struggle between it, but I, I would prefer it to be a diverse space. Yeah, I think um, I feel kind of similar to you, Harriet. Even though I'm not a white person, I also learned how to assimilate to whiteness. And so it wasn't always something that was super important to me. I think as I've progressed um, just in my journey of learning to love and accept myself as a, a black woman, um, I recognize the importance of like what I bring to the table as far as being an image bearer. And I think that's why it's important to have um, diversity in a church because Every human being, I think, has the ability to bring a different facet of God's nature and who God is. And when we're, when we're only um, allowing ourselves to experience spaces that are predominantly one culture, especially predominantly white, I think we're really missing out on the fullness of God. Um, yeah, I, th I prefer um, diverse church and spaces because I love people and I, I love stories and I love the, uh, I, I even love some of the disruption that comes from that. It's just, you know, I think we're better people when we uh, understand and know and go deeper with one another. And I think the path to that is sometimes mm -hmm. some tough, tough conversations and some disruption. So I, I kind of like that. I'm shocked to hear that you love disruption. <laughs> so, so to that end, what has your church experience in white, what has been your church experience in white-dominated spaces? Again, I've assimilated quite, I think, for the most part, well into white-dominated churches. Um, but at the same time, I, I can be kind of dense, and so, you know, if somebody said something, it probably I would not have caught it <laughs> as well. So, um, so I've become more aware of it now. But the, I think the main issue I've had as a woman has been uh, the most problematic for me because I um, have experienced tone policing and um, gaslighting. Um, tone policing meaning, as a woman, you need to sound like the first Peter woman who's meek and quiet and uh, display all manner of submission. 
and um, I don't fit that. <laughs> and so, but the, what's interesting is I've become now much more aware of my Asian side is that plays right into Asian identity too. So I struggle with it with gender and race because um, especially Japanese are, in general, this is also stereotypically, but, but in general, culturally, individually and families may differ, but culturally, women are, are expected to be submissive and quiet. So I get a double whammy sometimes when it comes to male, white male dominated leadership, because I find myself in leadership and then I get into trouble every single time. Except here, so far. Kurt's great. <laughs> so far. <laughs> I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> no, I don't expect that at all. No, it's been the first time, actually. I've been with a white male pastor who does get it, and so it's just been great. Um, I can go. Um, I grew up like for 20 some years in a all Chinese church. And so um, I went from like a dominated cultural experience with my own culture to going to college. Um, I went to George Fox, which was predominantly white and then moving to different churches um, after that that were predominantly white. And then I also worked for a parachurch ministry that's predominantly white. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's um, I've assimilated to white culture because that's, even though I grew up in a culturally Chinese experience, it, everything around us was white. And so um, I remember growing up for, I mean, I've thought this for a while, but I've always wanted to be white because I wanted to, to be like everybody else. I want to be normal. Um, and it wasn't until probably a few years ago where this like cultural awakening of just being proud to be Chinese and, and then um, giving a voice to people of color, um, especially in my job, uh, where it is white-dominated, uh, male-dominated, and um, I'm part of a, a group that's kind of trying to change that. But um, So it's been encouraging, like, hearing the um, responses from, like, our staff, um, just the affirming what we're doing, but also really discouraging because we're hearing um, just a lot of feedback of, like, is this over yet? Are we done being trained on like cultural intelligence? And um, so it's 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 really discouraging, and it's pushing me up against this challenge of like, um, and and also having like a voice in this, but also with the Chinese background of like this was honor shame. You don't speak up. You um, so it's it's like it's going up against something that culturally is the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing as a woman, a Chinese woman, and then also just uh, a person of color in this white dominant organization, you like, I think it comes across as like complaining or you're, you know, you're angry, or you're frustrated all the time. So it's, yeah, it's, a bit, it's been a mixed experience. Mm -hmm. um, I know for me, I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, I've spent most of my life in predominantly white churches, even when I lived in Chicago for four years, um, the church that I attended was predominantly white. And so, like I mentioned before, I'd gotten really good at assimilating. And I think that because um, most of my friends were white, I kind of feel like I was, I was the black friend that people liked to 
probably point to as like, oh, well, I'm friends with a black person and that's why I don't have any racism in me. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I think it wasn't until, I can't remember exactly what year, but right around the time that the Black Lives Matter movement began to gain traction and I started being more um, vocal about racism in America and white supremacy in the church and um, I was using my platform of, of Facebook, which I would not recommend. <laughs> it's not the most productive, um, as it happens. Yeah, um, I started to get a lot of pushback from my friends. I started to receive pushback from people that I went to church with, um, from like even pastors and house church leaders. Um, and so that has been... I mean, I think I still carry the wounds of, of that and not really feeling um, as though my experiences are, uh, are being heard um, or that an attempt to understand is being, being made. Uh, these ladies, I mean, I don't, I don't have much to add to how y'all have put, already painted that. Um, I think uh, growing up in Philadelphia and living in Atlanta, um, being in predominantly um, black spaces around church most of my life, uh, and then planting a multicultural church, what, what the experience there was that white people assume, they just assume authority, right? Like, dude, you ain't in charge, right? Like. And, uh, and I, 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 I'm a big mouth black man, so I assume I'm gonna talk. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that was quite the experience because the assumed authority of the white folks think that I would eventually, you know, come to normalize. Yeah. And when that doesn't happen, that, that, that disrupts a little bit of, of the thought process. So that's been my, my experience. Yeah. So. And to that end, I've shared this story before. I was a part of this thing through Fuller Seminary, and it was an intentionally diverse communities of people, and people were being trained on it. And so it was a, a diverse room of, of men and women, people from all kinds of different cultural backgrounds. And the white male leader got up and talked about how he was raised as a child, how to step in and take control of the room. And everyone laughed at the absurdity of that. But I didn't because that felt really, really true to my experience. Um, that you do, like, yeah, well, this is, oh, no one's talking? Well, uh, clearly, it needs a white male like me. Have you seen all of our presidents? Look at our money. This is a me situation. Um, and to become more aware of that and to start to disarm that and what's behind that has been really powerful. Can I add a couple other things just from yeah. a perspective, um, too, from as far as Asian, because you brought up honor-shame culture, and that's really significant to understand as a church, because there's all kinds of shame language in church, just in church language, okay? And man, that just like hits me so hard, and it, and I really struggle that way, so I lack confidence because of that, and I, and so that the honor, shame, and the idea of what honor means is important to me. The other, um, what was the second thing was, oh, um, uh, 
Japanese are known to be a very hardworking people, and they will spend more than their allotted share of working hours to to work as part of the system and the company that they work with. So, um, and so I find in church culture where behavior or performance is highly valued, that I often feel used as a result, because I'll work my tail off for you. I'll work my tail off for my faith community, but I end up feeling very used. And, that, and that's part of what I struggle with my, my Asian culture too. So I have this little saying that I say, if you don't know me, and, you know, like in a church situation, if you don't know me, then you're using me. And I came to the point of saying, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to be used like that. So a relationship is highly important to me to offset that for, for me. Yeah. And to that end, that leads really well into the, the last question we're talking about is what, what do people need to do to prepare themselves for a diverse community? Relationship, relationship, relationship <laughs> is, mm-hmm. for me, the first step there, or at least yeah. one of the first steps, yeah. yeah. Um, I was talking to my husband about this, because we, we talk a lot about just cultural conversations and racial reconciliation conversations, but um, our, thing, our thing is um, humility. Um, you're going to, especially the white folks in the room, like hearing stuff like this is hard and it's hard to understand and it's, it can be triggering and just uncomfortable. And are you willing to sit and listen and um, just, yeah, I think learn from people that don't look like you. That's what I was going to say too, is humility. Um, I think, yeah, and just a, a willingness to be corrected even um i i know i personally don't love being told that what i'm doing is wrong i don't think that's unique (laughs) to me um but i think it's really important for growth and um yeah in addition to humility i think just adopting um the mindset of yeah being willing to ask questions and recognize that you might not have the monopoly of knowledge when it comes to uh, these sorts of conversations and being willing to learn Um, and also just to recognize that it is going to be costly and it's going to cost comfort. Um, I I guess that goes to um, the pastoral staff too, like recognizing that this work is... um, it's not easy and it often does come at a cost and people might get upset and people might leave and you might, you know, lose people that are big tithers and that sort of thing. And, um, just being willing to endure that because it's worth it. I think just practice contextually, we're in Portland, Oregon, right. And, uh, uh, or thereabouts, and this is pretty strong white progressive place, right? And uh, I think a practical is like white progressives even like to tell people of color like what's best for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I mean, li- 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 I've had, I've never seen this before in my life. Like 
white people telling me what's best for black people, I'm like, how did you come to that? <laughs> right? And so um, I think a practical for us in looking at our context of, of, of Portland and, and, and the area around is that um, the, I, I like the humility point, like stand down. Like, I know you've read. I know you. I know you've read Howard Thurman, right? I, I, <laughs> I know you've read Dr. King's works. I know you've. You've. You, you know. You. You. You are well versed to speak. Stop speaking. Get a relationship, and follow what that person's or marginalized group is saying about how they define themselves, and stop trying to to dictate that space. White progressives are really good at that. And mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to stand down. Mm -hmm. right? so, not you, but just. Oh, I do, yeah. I'm not excluded from no, standing I just, down. No, I just saw that, you know, I get that intense gaze and it was going right at, at you. And yeah. was, <laughs> We're good. We're we cool, can work right? it out. Yeah, we yeah, can yeah. work it out, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, I, can you thank all of these individuals for being willing to share this thing?